Have you ever wondered why you read so many books, but it feels like none of them are really implementing? You're not really strategically taking any of the lessons and integrating them into your life. Well, in today's episode, we go into how you can start to read more intentionally and really be able to integrate those lessons and unlock your dream life. In today's episode, I got to interview Nick Hutchinson. Nick stands as the visionary force behind BookThinkers, a growing seven-figure marketing agency that seamlessly bridges the worlds of authors and readers. In just over seven years, he has organically built a platform that reaches over a million people each month. Nick's podcast, Book Thinkers Life-Changing Books is a global 2% show that features captivating interviews with world-class authors such as Grant Cardone, Lewis Howes, and Alex Hermosi. Now, Nick has dedicated his life to helping millions of readers take action on the information they learn and rise to their potential through his books, speaking, and personal brand as a whole. This was the inspiration for his new book, Rise of the Reader, where he dives into strategies for mastering your reading habits and applying what you learn. In this episode, we go into so many fun things like how to read a book more strategically and actually take what you learn and apply it to your life. We go into what inspired him to start book thinkers, what authors do not so well in terms of book launching, and so much more. So excited you guys are here. My name's Sophia. This is the shit show of my 20s. My goal is to make your 20s a little less of a shit show. So without any further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. I'd love to start telling me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we might resonate with. Let's start there. Sure. Well, Sophia, I'm excited to chat today. I'm still in my 20s, actually. I'm 29 years old. But my entire journey with book thinkers uh, writing this first book, it all started when I was 20. So this is a good frame for the conversation. Going into my 20s, I was in a very confusing place, I'd say. I was operating on one side of the spectrum with a ton of ego. Um, I was the jock stereotype in high school, kind of went into college with that. And it would represent itself at the expense of other people. I wasn't a lot of fun to be around. But on the other side of the spectrum, I had a lot of insecurities as well. I had social anxiety. I had a fear of communication. I was totally living under my potential. And uh, thank God I found the world of personal development books and I started working on myself. But yeah, my early 20s, definitely a mess. I was working a full-time job out of college, kind of building book thinkers as a side hustle. And you know, the very first iteration of my business, we wanted to build a mobile application that could help people retain more from the books they were reading. And we literally spent all this money that we had saved during college and, and right out of college hiring a a development firm in Argentina to build a mobile application. And spoiler alert, never came to be. Uh, The company that we outsourced to fell apart. They didn't help us pick up the pieces. And so that was how my business started. You know, it's definitely improved since there. But yeah, my early 20s, definitely a mess. (laughs) So many different places I want to go. I guess I'm curious first, like, what was that moment for you that you decided to get into personal development? Because I feel like there has to be some pretty hard moment to kind of launch you into personal development, because personal development can be kind of hard, like taking back the layers and really starting to work on everything. So I'm curious, what was that moment for you? I was going into my senior year, 
So I guess I was already 20 at this point. I was going into my senior year of college and I took an internship at a local software company. And right in the beginning, uh, my, my sales mentor, my boss, he would bring me to a couple of local appointments. And instead of chatting with me, he would throw on a business podcast. And I, up until that point, I'd never read a book. I'd never read any personal development material and I wasn't really open to it, but I thought these podcasts were pretty interesting. And he said something to me like listening to the same song for the 500th time is not going to help you get closer to your dreams and make more money, but listening to a personal development podcast might. So I'm like, okay. And where I was living that summer, I had like an hour commute each way to this internship. And so I'd started listening to these podcasts. And they were always very similar to this style conversation where there was a host who would interview a series of guests and those guests would share valuable information about what they did to become successful. And every single one of these episodes, the guest would talk about the books that helped them become successful. And so I'm sitting in the car one day just kind of thinking, wow, I'm deliberately choosing not to follow the roadmap. Like, I don't want to read these books. They're all telling me to read these books. That means I'm deliberately choosing to live under my potential. Like, I wonder if these books can actually solve all of this insecurity and all these ego-related issues with my temper and everything else that's coming up. Like, I wonder if they can actually help with that. And so that was kind of the first moment. I think sometimes when people are faced with that aha moment of this like unrealized potential, they choose not to embrace it. But I really wanted to be better than I was. And so I went to a local Barnes and Noble bookstore and sort of like list in hand, got 10 books, which was a lot of money for me at the time and just started devouring them and never looked back. Hmm. You said something so interesting. If you choose not to read these books, you choose not to get the roadmap that like someone else is laying down for you. I'm wondering yes. if you could go deeper into that and kind of like your thoughts on like different roadmaps and like why it's so important that we pick up more books. Yeah, let me grab one of my bookmarks here. So I always have these new book thinkers bookmarks and I cycle through different quotes and there's a quote that I'd like to read to you on this one. So it's it's a Mark Twain quote and it says, The man who does not read good books is no better than the man who can't. The man who does not read good books is no better than the man who can't. And so that's the essence of what was happening was like, I I literally had the ability to read books and I chose not to. So it's this skill set that all of us learn and choose not to apply. And if we choose not to apply it, we're literally no better than people who can't read in the first place. What's the point of learning this amazing skill set if you choose not to use it. And you know this like as well as I do. These books, they're condensing decades, decades of lived experience and overcoming challenges and lessons and valuable information into days of reading. So when I think about the bookshelves behind me, which you commented on, I literally have thousands of years of lived experience and billions of dollars of lessons <laughs> sitting behind me at $20 a piece. And they only take a few hours to read and implement. So it's like, if you choose, you know, and I'll say this to your audience, I guess, like I needed a wake up call. If you're choosing not to consume this type of information regularly, you're choosing not to replace a little bit of Instagram or a little bit of Netflix with reading a good book, you're choosing to live under your potential and you might come to regret it. And to me, that's the scariest thing. Like I don't want to end up looking back on my life and saying, wow, I played it safe. I lived under my potential. I didn't take any risks. I was not the boldest version of, my, of myself. Like, I don't want that to happen. Hmm. And I'm curious if you have a process of like how you choose the next book you're going to read. And like, once you get that book, 
anything you're intentionally doing to really make sure you're able to implement it afterwards. Well, I could talk for 12 hours about this subject. <laughs> I do a lot of things. So I'll, I'll start by saying this. Over the years of growing my community on Instagram, I've had hundreds of people reach out and say some form of the following statement. Hey, Nick, you're recommending all of these amazing books. And I've read some of them. In fact, I think they might even be able to solve the problems I'm facing, but I don't know how to translate that information into action. So that's why I decided to write this book that I'm launching November 1st, Rise of the Reader. And it, it details my entire process. Each time I would respond to these people, I'd send a voice note or maybe an email, type out a few paragraphs, but I felt like I was underserving them because I knew I was doing so much more than what I was capable of typing out in just a few minutes. So back to your question, how do I choose books? In the early stages, and this is why I got hooked, I was reading books that would solve a problem that I was facing in my life. It's like taking a painkiller medicine. Like it will solve something that you're currently dealing with and you'll feel great and you'll want more next time the pain pops up. And so that's kind of the cycle that I was going through. I would read sales and marketing books to improve my ability to sell and market at the job that I was working. I would read personal finance books to improve the personal finance insecurities that I was facing, you know, dealing with my own money for the first time. I would read books on confidence and self-esteem. I'd read books on life meaning and purpose so that I could solve the pains that I had. Um, so I think that's a very effective way to choose the books that you're going to read. I think these books have an opportunity to solve legitimate problems in our lives or help us improve skills that can create more opportunity for us. I like to look at the best-selling books in each category and read Amazon reviews. I think that when you're reading Amazon reviews, avoid the five stars and avoid the one and two stars and look at the three and four. That's where you're going to find reviews written from a place of logic, not emotion. You'll find some good constructive criticism. Uh, I like to go to Bookstagram and, and ask my community what books are a good fit for a specific problem if I don't already have one. Um, I like to ask my mentors. I have a number of mentors. I like to ask them since they know about me, they have a relationship with me, they know what problems I need to solve, what material works for me, so they make good recommendations. So those are some of the places that I like to go. And what do I do to get the most out of every book? I, you use the word intention, which is really special to me because I actually like to set an intention for each book that I'm reading. So here's a book that I haven't started yet, but I plan to soon. It's called Amplify Your Influence, Transform How You Communicate and Lead. And so rather than just aimlessly reading through this book, looking for ways to improve my communication, I'm going to set a goal, what I call an intention, and it will follow the SMART goal framework. So an example might be, I'd like to find and implement at least two strategies to improve my communication by the end of next week. And I'll write that on the inside cover and review it each and every time I open up the book so that my brain can help filter for those two strategies that I can find and implement to improve my communication by the end of next week. Now, that follows the SMART goal framework. It's specific, find and implement two. It's measurable, two. I'll know whether or not I hit it. It's attainable and actionable. It's written and relevant. I'm going to write it in my activity tracker once I find the things, but it's also written on the inside cover of the book and it's relevant to my life. And then it's time bound. I want to do it by the end of next week. And if I can spice things up and add a little bit of emotion, like because I suffered from social anxiety and the, and the failure to communicate effectively for so much of my life, 
And I know that only by improving my communication, I can improve my potential. Imagine reading that every time you open up the book before you read a few more pages, like you'll just get fired up and you'll filter for those two things to implement. So I have tons of strategies like that documented in the book, but that's an example of what I do uh, to create more intention. Hmm. I love that you go back to that each time. It's so helpful. And like on that same topic for communication, what are your favorite books? I love both of Vanessa Van Edwards' books, Captivate and Cues. Those are two really good books on the art of communication and charisma. Some of my all-time favorites. I, I really love the basics like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I've read a lot of sales books. I think sales books are really good for improving your communication. And so tons of different sales books over, over time. But yeah, I think Cues and Captivate, those would be my go-to two places to start. Cool. And I kind of want to go back to when you started your company and it was a side hustle. Did you think it would be what it is today? How did, were you able to balance it as well with the full-time job that you had? How were you able to keep building it? What I have today is totally different than what I originally envisioned, that's for sure. So when I was in college, earlier college, I ran a house painting business for two years with my friends and uh, that was a lot of fun. I learned that I really was a better entrepreneur than employee, but I didn't have the chops to do it myself. So that's why I took the full-time job out of college. And I, I saw a Gary Vee video once where he said, find a full-time job that supports your side hustle. And what he meant by that was find a full-time job that will teach you the skills that will transfer into improving your ability to grow a business. And so that's what I did. I, I took a full-time sales job in a small business so that I could understand the world of sales and marketing, but also the world of small business. And a lot of my friends that went to bigger companies, they ended up just getting coffee for some executive for two years. And they never really got to sit in on business meetings. They just got to sit in on some very specific type of cut and paste meeting. And so, yeah, I think small business was really important for me and sales was really important for me. And I made a lot of time sacrifices in my early 20s once I started to figure this out. Uh, I had a nine to five and then I had a five to nine, if you will. And because I kept a full-time job while trying to build a side hustle, I didn't have to operate from a place of scarcity like so many entrepreneurs unfortunately do. In the beginning of the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, one of my favorite books on entrepreneurship and small business, he says that 95% of small businesses fail in the first five years. And I think that's true because you try to jump too soon, try to build a business too fast and you burn through your cash. And so I received a piece of advice very early on in my journey that slow and steady will win the race. It's exciting to want to do it fast, but you have to be patient. And all of the failures that I experienced very early on, and by the way, there were a lot of them. I think the first nine versions of Book Thinkers probably failed and cost me money, but I could keep going because I had the full-time job supporting it. And I know that if I had left and jumped too soon, tried to build the parachute on the way down, if you will, that Book Thinkers probably wouldn't exist today. So when I first started the business, it was supposed to be a mobile application. That never came to be. I even made a second attempt at building a mobile application years later, still didn't work out. We tried to build mastermind groups. We tried to sell t-shirts and book-related merchandise. None of it worked. And what did work, like I mentioned before, was that as my audience started to grow, authors would reach out and say, hey, Nick, 
your audience is my target reader. Can I pay you for a book review? You know, because I'm trying to build this audience in anticipation of an app coming out or to sell merch to or to build a mastermind around. Those things didn't work, but supporting authors by doing paid book reviews started to work. You know, I just asked those people, hey, is there anything else that I can help with? And they'd say yes. And I'd try things out and most of them wouldn't work. But, you know, I think I just was able to stick with it because I had the full-time job supporting me at the same time. And and I also was able, I'll, I'll add this in there for everybody. I was also able to read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss and really make a push for my full-time job to become a remote virtual job way before COVID, all the way back in 2017, 2018. And then from there, I was able to sort of like automate much of my responsibilities, delegate stuff as the company continued to grow. And I just found myself in this position where my full-time job and my side hustle were able to switch places in terms of time. I was only working a few hours a day on the full-time job and I could work a full-time job in the side hustle just because that's what I was passionate about. And I think that because I was connected to a purpose there, I was able to sort of push through all the mud. Hmm. I'm curious with all the authors that you work with, what's something you notice they do well in terms of marketing and what's something you notice that they do not so well? That's a great question. I think a lot of authors, I'll start with the not so well. I think a lot of authors under deliver on social media. You know, the fact is there are billions of monthly active users on all of the major platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, literally billions of monthly active users, which means that their target readers exist on the platforms. Some people tell me, ah, oh, you know, my, my target reader isn't on social media. Of course they are. Everybody uses social media in some way, shape or form. You just have to find them. And so I think a lot of authors, they fail to give social media the credit that it deserves as far as a book marketing mechanism. I mean, you could post one video and it could get a million views. You never know. You're always rolling the dice and a million views could sell a thousand books, which is pretty special. So that's what I think a lot of authors fail to do well. I think what a lot of authors do well is they write good books. I think a lot of people condense decades of their information into days. It's extremely valuable. There's a line in the back of Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki where he says, it's not a best written book, it's a best selling book. And so it's the selling piece I think that authors sometimes fail on, but it's the writing piece that they really do well. And so book launching, book writing, it's a team sport. You know, I think let the authors write and let marketing companies support them. It's a better kind of symbiotic relationship that way. Hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on like if someone has to have like social media and their presence before they even go to start to write the book or if you work with authors who are like just beginning, no social media. I'm curious on your thoughts there. Oh, we definitely do a lot of both. It's easier if an author builds a social media presence before they need to leverage it. Because another one of my favorite Gary Vee lines is jab, 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 right hook, which means provide free value over and over and over and over and over again. And every once in a while, throw a right hook out there with a call to action to purchase something. And so, yeah, if, if you're able to build relationships before you need them, establish trust, provide value for free for a very long time, and then make your ask. You'll have an audience to sell into that will trust you and will buy what you're selling. So yeah, definitely a big fan of building first. But I'll say like, I think that my business book thinkers were starting to work with more and more authors that have no pre-existing social media presence and we're trying to build it as fast as we can for them. Hmm. And what hacks are you doing to make sure you can build it as fast as you can? Using short form video content 
of the author's face speaking to the camera with a high quality hook providing legitimate value so that you can retain the viewer throughout the video, proper captions, proper lighting, proper editing, background music, all of those things matter. You know, if if you want a quality audience, you have to put out quality content. And so short form video, it's I like to I like to view each piece of short form video like a little virtual version of the author out there collecting leads and teaching and gaining followers. And what's nice about short form video is that the same piece of content can be used maybe slightly modified, but can be used almost in a cut and paste style on all of the major social platforms. It also, that style of content has the most viral potential. So picture content, which everybody's comfortable creating, uh, just doesn't have the same viral potential as short form video. There's also another strategy that we like to use called the $1.80 strategy. It's another Gary V thing. This is the most I've talked about Gary V on a podcast, I think in a long time, but he was important for my 20s. He talks about this idea of searching a hashtag related to your subject matter and commenting on the first 10 posts that pop up, providing your two cents. So leaving a genuine comment on that post. And if you do that on 10 hashtags a day, you get to $1.80. Or the top nine on each one, yeah, you get to $1.80. And what that does is you're providing value in somebody else's comment section. And if you've never been in their comment section, they're probably going to click to your profile and see who this person's all about. If you're providing valuable video content, they might follow you. You're also filtering through this process for people that are in your target audience because you're searching hashtags related to your business. On top of that, you're going to consume a bunch of trending content maybe 90 pieces a day if you do the full process like I used to do. And that will teach you what's working out there on social media so that you can replicate it and create content that's very similar to it, sort of like steal like an artist. And that strategy is how I built my community from zero to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 5,000, and all the way up to where we are today. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's a great strategy. And when you comment on other people's posts, don't be scammy. It's not, you know, hey, follow me, but it's provide some genuine feedback on whatever they're posting and they're so much more likely to reciprocate. Mm. I love Gary Vee. So I love all the Gary Vee mentions today. (laughs) And I'm curious for like your writing process and when you started to write your book, is this the first book you've written? Have you written multiple books? I'm curious, like how long did it take you? How did that process kind of look like for you? Well, you want to talk about a mess. It was a mess. <laughs> I was approached by uh, one of our like vendor partners about three years ago. They're a self-publishing services company. And they said, hey, if you ever want to write a book, we'll comp our services, help you get through the process in exchange for like some ads for our business. And I said, yeah, sure. Like I want to write a book now. Let's try it out. And I thought with all of the discipline that I have, that I'd be able to prioritize an hour or two of writing a day and get the book done in a few months. Here we are three years later, and the book is coming out November 1st. So it took me about three years to go through that process. And that's because it would consistently fall on my priority list. I have a growing business, we're adding staff, we're working with more customers, and I would always prioritize them, I think, over myself. And there would be short spurts where I'd get a little bit of writing done, uh, but most of the time I'd go a month or two without writing anything. And so, yeah, it was a messy process. I have so much more respect for my author clients. I I think I assumed it was a little easier than it actually was. And even once you finish the book, your first rough draft, I mean, you're not even a quarter of the way there. 
there's all this editing and line editing and developmental editing and all of this other stuff, formatting, cover design, and you've got to go out there and get blurbs for your book. And then you've got to go into a, a pre-sale stage and sell it for a few months and do, you know, so it's a lot of work. Like I didn't think it was going to be so hard, but it is hard. Yeah. It looks a lot easier than it actually is, but yeah. yeah. And I'm curious why like this book, why now? And like, who would you like to really read this book? Well, yeah, just over the years of growing this community, like I said, hundreds of people reached out saying, Nick, you have read a bunch of books. You're implementing these books. They're changing your life. You're designing your dream life. We can see it from afar. How can we do that ourselves? And I just felt like I was really underserving everybody with a couple of paragraphs about the subject. So I decided to write the book. I decided to say, what am I doing? Like what reading strategies do I have? What implementation frameworks am I leveraging? What's the best way to take information from a book and translate it into action? And, uh, you know, I think that why now, like I want to serve my younger self. I want to serve the version of me who was 20 years old, who was really confused, who knew he was living under his potential, but didn't really know how to close the gap between where he was and where he wanted to be. And so that's why I decided to write the book. And I'll tell you what, like, even if the book sells zero copies, which it won't, because I know my mom will buy at least one. <laughs> Even if the book sells zero copies, like I learned so much about myself through the process of writing this that it's already paid dividends. And now I can talk about my process with so much more confidence. And I've built the language around these frameworks and I can teach them to other people and I can teach them from stage. So it's uh, it's been valuable for me. And obviously I can't wait to see how many people that I can positively impact through the book as well. And what did you learn about yourself in the process? I learned that my purpose is progress and fulfillment. You know, I'm always looking to make progress in my health, wealth, and happiness. And when I can do that, I'm so much more motivated to get out of bed every day and work on myself and work in my business. I, I learned that my business's mission is the right book at the right time can change somebody's life. And everything we do is in support of that because books changed my life and books changed the lives of everybody on our staff and so many people in our community. It's a really powerful purpose for me. I learned that I'm not a great writer. <laughs> I learned that it takes a long time for me to simplify what I'm trying to say sometimes. Probably you could tell in this long response. And uh, yeah, I just, I learned that, and this is a little bit of a pat on the back, but I learned that I did design my dream life in my 20s. I went from a complete mess to literally living what I dreamed in less than 10 years as a result of these books. And I learned that other people can do the same thing because I'm not anybody special. I wasn't a great student, not the smartest guy. I just took all of these amazing books and I implemented them and the magic happens. So it's like, I just want to get that message out there more. And what's something you wish you would have done differently with your writing process with this book? I wish that I had been more consistent, that I just set a smaller amount of time aside instead of trying to do an hour a day, maybe 15 minutes a day or something like that. Um, I wish that I gave myself more time in sort of like the pre-sale stage, the, the book marketing stage. What ended up happening was I kept pushing the date back, pushing the date back, pushing the date back, and then I wouldn't get the work done. So I just picked November 1st and it's forced me to get everything else done a little bit later uh, than best practice would say, <laughs> but so be it. 
like, you know, Lewis, for instance, you were at his, were you at the summit of greatness last year? Yeah. So we're sitting in the audience and he announces his book and he gave himself September, October, November, December, January, February, March. He gave himself seven months to launch the book, collect pre-orders. He did bulk sales. It's like, I wish that during my writing process, I gave myself, I finished the book faster so that I gave myself some more time to do a little bit of that. I'm curious on like your thoughts. Cause like book thinkers, it seems like the niche is personal development. And what are your thoughts on like focusing on like such a, on niching down versus maybe being like an agency for everyone. I'm curious your thoughts there. One of the best books that I read last year and I reread this year was hundred million dollar offers by Alex Hormozy. And I'll butcher the example, but I'll create my own real quick. So a car wash might be able to charge $25 for a car wash. I don't know what they cost, but probably $25. A car wash that specializes in German automobiles and only accepts German cars might be able to charge a hundred bucks. I drive a Mercedes, a, a car wash that only specializes in Mercedes might be able to charge 200 bucks. And then, you know, I don't have it yet, but my dream car is a G-Wagon. I'd love to drive a G-Wagon. A car wash that only did Mercedes G-Wagons could probably charge like $500. And so the further you get into your niche, it's the same car wash, same exact thing. You're just marketing it to a, a specific niche. You're able to charge more. You know, Alex says in his book that the the best way to provide more value is to increase your price because pricing drives inherent value. And so I think with my business, it's like, yeah, I could have a marketing agency and charge a little bit for it. I could have a marketing agency that serves authors, charge a little bit more, that only serves personal development authors, charge a little bit more. But where my business actually sits is we only serve personal development authors that have a higher ticket complimentary product or service that is related to their book, like coaching, consulting, speaking, those types of things. So that the book acts as a business card or a lead mechanism for everything else they have in their environment. And if we go out and film 100 videos for an author that meets that criteria, we're able to charge a lot more because they're able to make a lot more from the same service. You know, if I went and filmed 50 videos for somebody who's a first-time self-published fiction author without any complimentary products or services, or somebody in a different space in general, they probably wouldn't be able to make any money from the videos that we generate for them. But for my super targeted niche client, they definitely do. And thankfully, that client also is the person that I look up to. You know, like the target client that we serve is the same type of person that I grew up watching and following. You know, Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday and Tony Robbins and, you know, Gary V and Robin Sharma and Lewis Howes and all of these names. These are the people that I looked up to and they all have a business built around their book. What are your top books for sales? My favorite is a, is a lesser known book called Gap Selling by Keenan. And yeah, just one name, Keenan. And Gap Selling uh, essentially states like there's a gap between where your prospect is and where they want to be. And it helps you essentially fill the gap, but it also helps you amplify the pain in between the gap to make it seem bigger, but that your solution can help solve the problem. So I really enjoy that book. Uh, right now, I'm listening to $100 Million Leads by Alex Hormozzi. It's a brand new book. And he, he's, he has a follow-up coming out called $100 Million Sales, but I think $100 Million Leads is already one of my favorite sales books. I really like Way of the Wolf by Jordan Belfort. Jordan is the Wolf of Wall Street guy. And 
but he definitely has some good sales chops. You don't have to like and agree with everybody personally to learn from them. That's something that I've definitely learned over and over and over again in the world of personal development. So that's a really good sales book, Way of the Wolf by Jordan Belfort. I really love Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a book on negotiation. He's an FBI negotiator and he teaches you sort of like FBI negotiation tactics. It's a really good book. So those are some of my favorites. And if someone could only read three personal development books in their lifetime, what three books would you recommend? I like to say that the Bible is my favorite personal development book, but we'll put that one aside for now. Three traditional personal development books, The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy teaches you that small steps in the right direction over a very long period of time can lead to disproportionately positive outcomes. And what that means is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? If you're in your early 20s and you just don't have anything going your way, one little step in the right direction every single day will eventually lead you to the place that I've found myself in, which is this place of fulfillment and freedom and progress and joy and uh, just enjoying the passage of time. So The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. I'd recommend only three. I'd recommend Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. The subtitle is something like The Uncommon Art of Long-Term World Travel. And I would say 50% of the progress that I've made in my life has come from the books that I've read. And the other 50% has come from all of the international travel that I've participated in. And so that book totally blew my mind because he says, listen, you don't have to subscribe to the traditional American framework of traveling for one week a year and spending a ton of money while doing so. You can actually spend a few months of of the year abroad traveling internationally, and it doesn't actually have to be so expensive. So I've learned so much traveling internationally, embracing discomfort, trying to communicate in different languages, trying new foods, going on fun excursions, going off the beaten path. And that book, Vagabonding, has really helped. And it is a personal development book. You know, there's lines like, you'll discover entire continents within yourself and stuff like that. So it's it's a good one. And number three, I'll say The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John David Mann. That teaches the reciprocal nature between giving and receiving, giving and receiving. The more you have, the more you can give. The more you receive, the more you can give. And so you need to be open to both of those things. And you know, when, when you're somebody like me who had a lot of ego in my early 20s and then I shifted totally towards impact and service to others, you tend to overgive and you're not open to receiving. And so that book sort of said like, hey, you've got to sit back and realize that there's a reciprocal nature to this and that you need to participate in both of those actions. You can't just give and you can't just receive. So those are the three. Great recommendations. I've only heard of one. So I'm going to look into the other two. Haven't heard of those. And I've noticed you've been able to make so many relationships with so many like influential people like Lewis Howes. I'm curious like how you've been able to do that and like any tips for someone who wants to start to build relationships like those. There's a great book called The Third Door by Alex Benayan. And real quick, the metaphor is that every nightclub has three ways to get in. Door number one is general admission. And that's what most people try to do when they want to get in touch with somebody like Lewis Howes. They'll send a DM on Instagram or you know, they'll get in the comment section. They'll go to an event and try to get his attention. But that's the general admission line. At a club, that line might wrap around the building. You've got to pay a cover when you get to the front door and you might not even get in. Door number two is the VIP line. You've got to know somebody. You've got to have some money. Most of us, when we're first starting out, we don't have access to the 
to the VIP door. Um, so that's not realistic. And and for Lewis House, that might mean paying for a private mastermind that costs 30 grand, or it might mean uh, paying to have them come speak at your event or something like that. So you get access to them or take them out to dinner. Again, most people don't have access to that. But every nightclub has a third door. Every relationship has a third door. And in the case of a nightclub, it might mean crawling in through the kitchen window, army crawling through the back, and you come in through the back door. You're still in the club, but that's how I've been able to build these relationships with people like Lewis. I'm always finding some type of third door. Um, so I'll give you a fun example. On my podcast, episode number nine was Grant Cardone. At the time, I didn't have a large social media following. I didn't have a big podcast, obviously. I was only at episode number nine. But I wanted to go get Grant because I thought that if everybody saw me talking to Grant, multi-billionaire, you know, charges $50,000 an hour for his time. If Grant says yes, everybody else should say yes too. So <laughs> I, I tried a thousand different ways to get Grant. Uh, what ended up working was that I filled out a speaking form on his website and I said I was willing to spend like 25 grand or something for a virtual interview, which obviously I didn't have any money for, but that got me the nomenclature of his email structure and it got me talking to a couple of people on his team. And at first I said, hey, surprise, I don't have any money to spend, but thanks for emailing me. Like, I'd love to make a pitch for why I think Grant should come on my show. They said, no, I kept just trying to pack it with more value. I kept saying, listen, I just want a half an hour of his time. I'll move worlds to make this happen. I'll make any time on his calendar work for me. I said, he can sell anything he wants to my audience. I'll chop it up and distribute it on all the social platforms. Like this is going to be legendary. And eventually they said yes. And so it gets better because I record with Grant. Obviously, I'm like all nervous and stuff. It was super early in my process. And we had a great time. And at the end of a half an hour, I was still recording. And I said, hey, Grant, I'm going to be in Miami for the next few months. I'd love to record another episode. Are you down? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I had that recorded. And I wasn't going to be in Miami, but I just kind of said that in the moment. And so I sent that to his team. And I was like, please tell me a day in the next few months that will work for you. I'm going to be in the area. I'll make it work. And so they pick out a date because I literally have a video recording of Grant saying that he'll do this with me. And so they get they pick out a date. Then I book my flights. So now I'm going to be down there. And I got to spend the day with Grant and Elena, like an afternoon at least. And they were super kind and super gracious. I took a ton of photos with them. And because of that, I was able to leverage his credibility to build a ton of other relationships. Now I'm starting to get into door two, right? Like, that VIP door, you got to know somebody. Well, I know Grant, you know, and everybody else knows Grant too. So that's one example of the strategies that I use to build these relationships with people. And I always just try to provide value to over deliver, not ask anything of them other than their time. And outside of that, I'll try to sell a ton of books. I'll try to be their biggest fan. I'll drip content out there all the time. I'll, I'll speak very highly of them. And uh, that's, that's worked. That's so smart. How you're able to capture that on video. You're really like, wow, thinking it all through. Get the follow up. And yeah, angle. he probably had no idea. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I love the third door. It's like you can't go through the first one or the second one. So it's trying to figure out a way to find the third one. And I'm curious, like, if you could give another example of like another way to find the third door. Because I just, I love, I love these stories. So <laughs> if you have any other examples of like, strategic ways to find that door. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you one that you'll be familiar with. So I noticed years ago that Lewis Howes followed me on Instagram. Super cool. He was liking posts, viewing stories. So I made a few asks 
since I knew he would see the DMs, like, will you come on my podcast? Essentially, I just wanted to borrow his credibility at the time. I wasn't a huge fan yet. I just knew that he was a big name. And he would always say something like, hey, I don't have any active books that I'm promoting. Maybe in the future, maybe in the future. Hey, check in with me in six months. Like he would always kick the can down the road. And one of the guys on my team last year said, hey, Lewis is hosting a Summit of Greatness. He's in Lexington, Kentucky. And another one of my guys on my team lives in Columbus. So they're like, you should come out. We should all go to the event together. So I'm like, heck yeah. So I let Lewis know that I was going to be there and that I was bringing my team and that I bought a few tickets and that I was super excited. And he probably got got a thousand of those messages. He's like, yeah, whatever. Um, So I show up to the event and I'm documenting it. I'm posting about it a lot. I'm trying to show some value. He reposts a couple of stories on day one or whatever. And then we're at that North Market area and Lewis pops in for a minute, like through the side. And I was just kind of standing over where he was with my team. And the guy, Luke, on my team is like, hey, Lewis just jumped in. So I walked over. And thankfully, because he'd been following me for so long, he had recognized me a little bit. He's like, oh, hey, like, Nick, what's going on? The Bookthinkers crew like took a few photos with us. And then 10 minutes later, sort of like dipped out of that North Market kind of like meetup. And But what he said to me while we were hanging out, I was like, hey, you know, you just announced your book. Like, I'd love to help support it. You can come on my podcast. I'll fly out. Are you interested in that? And he's like, yeah, sure. When it's cold in Boston and it's warm in LA, why don't you come out for a day and film a podcast interview? So it was like in in the third door by Alex Benayan, he talks about following Tim Ferriss into the bathroom and then like asking him for an interview or something. It was, you know, not so extreme, but like, Lewis pops in, I make a beeline to him. I ask him if I can interview him for my podcast and I'll fly out. So all of the burdens on me, he says yes. And I just continued to support him for a few months without that ask. And once I continued to provide a lot of value, I said, Hey, Lewis, I'm ready to fly out. Like, let's pick a date. And he said, yes. So we flew out. We spent a day with him. We recorded a podcast. We just hung out. You know, he broke down my business, made a bunch of recommendations, filmed some fun videos for my audience. Like it was just super cool. He's exactly who you would want him to be off camera as he is on camera. He's just the best guy on the planet. And so, you know, he has a fan in me for life. And all of the footage that we were able to capture flying out and visiting him in LA with my team and filming the podcast and stuff, it's opened up a lot of doors as well. And so, like I mentioned to you this year, we have over 60 people related to book thinkers attending his event, you know, like 40 of my author clients and some spouses and some of my team members. And it's like, you know, we're doing that because he opened himself up to the relationship and and because I sort of jumped on it. You know what I mean? So hopefully that one was helpful too. Yeah. I love these stories. That's so cool. It's like, take any moment you can get and like be creative with getting that moment. And I have a final question for you. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell him? Or if you want to tell him nothing at all, it's an option as well. I think I would tell him something, but it would be along the lines of nothing. I would say, you're going to figure it out. You're on the right path already. Don't change anything. Failure leads to progress. Constructive criticism is a good thing. Just keep doing what you're doing, dude. You're going to figure it out. That's what I'd say. Mm-hmm. Love that. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to interview me. And and for anybody in your audience that's still listening, thank you for choosing to listen to the whole interview. And if anybody wants a personalized book recommendation from me, it's one of my favorite things to do. So DM us on Instagram at bookthinkers. 
tell me about the problem that you're facing or the skill that you want to improve. And I will probably ask some follow-up questions um, and make a book recommendation. And I'll even try to follow up with people like a few months later to see if they've read the book. So I just like book matchmaking is one of my favorite things. And I just, I genuinely believe that the right book at the right time can change somebody's life. And that's why I'm here. So happy to be that for people. Awesome. I love that. You're like a bumble for books. Yes. That's a good, that's a good tagline. I'm going to start saying that not matchmaker, but bumble for books. (laughs) You got to DM me first, but then, then I'll follow up with the recommendation. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.